athletic competition. It can easily be broken down into two parts. The minutes or hours it takes to complete the event. Then weeks, months, and years of joy or heartbreak. Finally, the decades to analyze and debate it. From the press box to press row, Donald Ware will break it all down for you with an in-depth look at historically black college athletics, as well as the biggest news stories and newsmakers of the day. It's time to talk the talk with those who walk the walk. From the press box to press row, here's your host, Donald Ware. Don't touch my truck. Locked into the dopest show on radio from the press box to press row. I am your host, Donald Ware. I tell you what, a lot of change. We're working towards change in this country, but I'm going to tell you what, change has got to begin, in my opinion, with reparations. We need to have a, a serious discussion about reparations in this country for all of the Tulsa's. If you remember the Tulsa uh, massacre from when, as a matter of fact, I studied that. I forgot how I learned about that. But I um, in in 1996, I was a student at Morgan State. I had heard about the Tulsa called it the Tulsa riots at the time. It really was the Tulsa massacre and a prominent community in Tulsa, black community, black businesses. Uh, just very, very prosperous. And you had some white citizens back in 1921 did not like the prosperity that black folks were making within Jim Crow segregation and bombed, literally bombed Tulsa in that community back in 1921. And oh, by the way, can you believe that the president is holding a rally in which, okay, in which, not only holding a rally, in which he's asking people that attend the rally to sign a waiver that if they catch the coronavirus, that the that they, meaning the president, the rally, is not responsible. And, oh, by the way, let me say this. Happy Juneteenth uh, also. Hope you had a great Juneteenth and was going to have it on the same day as Juneteenth. Had no, uh, as a lot of folks don't, uh, about what Juneteenth is and what it meant. But, I mean, let's talk. You know, we need to talk about that. So I I studied that, uh, and this was before the Internet. I happened to be working at the Library of Congress at the time. I was working in the newspaper and current periodical reading room so I had access to the Tulsa newspapers or any newspaper really around the country at that time and read a lot about that and just was appalled at what happened so until we can have serious conversations about uh, the Tulsa world the Rosewoods uh, of the world I mean what you know What are we we need to have those kind of conversations about reparations? We want to talk about change. That's great. But again, as I mentioned last week, a lot of the change has to begin from an economic standpoint, from an economic standpoint for all of the years that black in this country uh, were treated uh, 
uh, as second class citizens with disrespect, with having money, with having property taken away. Those are the kind of conversations that we need to really be having. And not only the conversations that we need to be having, but also talking about real action from an economic standpoint for those that were damaged for generations. And by the way, look at those that took away. And, and, and you know, I mentioned Wilmington. I mean, the, the Wilmington, you can still, and I've you know, been to Wilmington a little bit more recently in North Carolina. You can still see the of the riots of 1898 in Wilmington, not, not the right overthrow. The only time that's happened in American history, you can still see the effects of that in Wilmington, North Carolina. So there's all kinds of conversation, all kinds of examples that can be given. Let's have continue to have the conversation about change, about race, because that's how Really, things are going to heal. There has to be an understanding from the white community about what has happened in the black community over the years. But, you know, let's let's have those conversations. But let's really have those conversations uh, about reparations uh, in this country. Those are the serious, real serious conversations that we need to have. And by the way. Uh, support a black business. If you uh, know of a black business, doesn't matter if you're black, white, whatever, support a black owned business. Again, we need to have the economic conversation. Got a lot to get to today here on from the press box to press row. I want to talk to the parents of high school kids that are thinking about going to a respective school, their son, daughter, excelling in a respective sport. I want to talk directly to the parents and to the child about attending an HBCU. It doesn't just have to be black kids. It can be any kid, okay, because at the end of the day, there are really, uh, you know, you have black, white, uh, Latino, et cetera, that are playing at respective HBCUs. So let's have that conversation about attending HBCUs. I'm going to have that conversation uh, a little bit later on. Listen, it's a Father's Day type of weekend here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Happy Father's Day to all the great fathers out there. My father, as he's done the last three or four years or so, going to join us today here on the program. Always love for him to tell the story about his interaction with Vince Lombardi. So he's going to tell that story. We're going to talk about some other things also today here on the program. Speaking about, and it's one of the reasons, just from a historical perspective, why we need to attend HBCUs. Tony McGee, those, uh, Tony McGee was a very, very good football player in the National Football League, played with the Bears, played with the Patriots, won a Super Bowl with the Redskins, played defensive tackle. He was part of, and, and, I, and, you know, and again, I don't know everything, but it's one of the things I didn't know was about the Black 14 from the, uh, with respect to the University of Wyoming back in 1969, 14 black players, part of protests, there and ultimately uh, didn't go well for uh, for for really uh, Wyoming for that community didn't go well uh, at all 
And I want, we're going to talk with Tony McGate um, today here on the program. It's part of the Black 14. Um, maybe it's something you didn't know, but you'll learn about the Black 14 today on the program. And I think it's interesting. You talk We talk about the Black 14 in the University of Wyoming, and part of that is some of those students, or football players more specifically, really football players, wanted to be part of the protests there with respect to the University of Wyoming protesting um, uh, BYU uh, it was coming in. It was one of the the the, uh, the, the game uh, was against BYU, who at that time uh, was part of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons uh, was not uh, allowing for black, either black membership or maybe black priesthood more specifically. And uh, so there was a protest there and the uh, Black 14 part of it. Their head football coach did not want them to be a part of that. Conversely, when you look at the Orangeburg massacre of 1969 in that same year, in that same year, their head football coach uh, said, hey, if you want to be a part of that and be a part of that. So we're going to talk. Uh, again, about uh, with Tony McGee about the Black 14 here on the program. Another brother dead at the hands of the police. This time, Brooks uh, in it. Uh, it uh, was a shame uh, what I saw in that video. The, 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 the shame, a lot of the shame happened to not only come from what you saw. He 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 resisted. Or uh, you know, you have to watch this video. Like to me, it looked like a game that the cop was playing prior to trying to arrest Rayshard Brooks. It looked like a game to me. And ultimately, uh, Brooks resisted arrest, grabbed the taser, was running away, okay, was running away, shot the taser, which is not a deadly weapon. The cop shot and killed him. But even more so after that, it's the aftermath. They had his body cam on and all of the events that transpired. It, it was to, to that cop is just like another day at the office. It was reprehensible. And uh, again, we, you know, this is getting, this is beyond ridiculous. But it's something that's been going on for a long, long time, not just in the last couple of months, not just in the last couple of years, not just in the last couple of decades, not just in the last couple of 50. It's been going on for far too long. So uh, if we can have some time, we'll get into that also today on the program. You can join us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Hit us up via Twitter at Box to Row, B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W, or on Facebook, B-O-X, the number two, R-O-W, my personal Twitter account at dware one or on Instagram at WearDonald. Let's step aside, take a break, come back. Tony McGee played 14 seasons in the National Football League. Going to join us right here on From the Press Box to Press Row. It's Donald Ware, host of From the Press Box to Press Row. The biggest names are guests on Box to Row. That is the voice of Kevin Durant. Oh, yeah, well, I'm just, you know, trying to get better every single day. You know, uh, we've been through a lot as a team, and I enjoy playing with a great group of guys. Hey, this is Ronda Rousey. This is Michael Vick. Hi, this is Layla Ali. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Skylar Diggins. Hey, it's Alex Morgan with the U.S. Women's Soccer Team. I'm talking about none other than Serena Williams. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. That was definitely one of the better matches I've ever played. I've had it just like that. You know, I was really focused, yeah, and I was really 
um, ready and serious, just really, you know, excited. Missed any of these interviews? Then check us out online at www.botchtorow.com. That's from the press box to press row. Real, relevant radio. You're listening to From the Press Box to Press Row. Tony McGee played 14 seasons in the National Football League, played with a couple of teams. As a matter of fact, the Patriots, the Bears, and of course my team, the Washington Redskins, where he won Super Bowls. And, you know, he was part of uh, what's called, and I don't know if you guys saw this on ESPN, uh, the Wyoming 14, the Black 14 uh, part of that 1969 Wyoming football team, which we want to talk a lot about with him. And he ultimately finished his career at HBCU Bishop State. He's Tony McGee, joins us here on From the Press Box Throw. Tony, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. And I tell you what, it sounds good to hear that HBCU, as you know. And I just have to correct one thing with Bishop College. You got to give us a play. <laughs> Little school down there, out of Marshall, Texas, a long time ago. But you know, Donald, I always tell people that if we're not for that school, even though I was one of the probably better players in the country, I never had the opportunity to play pro ball. Yeah, yeah, no question. I mean, that that's the thing. HBCUs have given you know an opportunity to a lot of players. Um, there are what now? I think thirty-two. There's no three. Uh, there's three additions to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, and so it's now 33 players that will be in the Pro, Pro Football Hall of Fame that played at HBCUs. Now, you were up for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, what, in 94, correct? Yeah, I was nominated but not elected. And it would be kind of understanding because my career was split. And as you know, I, played, I was at the University of Wyoming for, for two years. That were really two and a half years. And then I went to Bishop for one year and – at the University of Wyoming, as you know, we were unsurrounded. We were, well, I ain't even going to call it that. We were cut loose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we went down to Bishop College, and, and I had a good season down there, and I always feel like that HBCU was very important to me. And But any education. But when you go through what we went through at the University of Wyoming, I tell you what, it just changed your observation of where and what you want to do and how you want to go about doing your business. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that that piece came on, which – you know, I I I I, you know, I I must say, I mean, I wasn't familiar with that situation. I want to, uh, you know, I want to compare it in, in in maybe coming weeks to the situation that happened in Orangeburg with the, some of the South Carolina State football players. Take us back to that time in 1969 uh, with respect to what the climate was around there in, in Wyoming and the stance that you as football players took. Well, you know, if you look back and what transpired is at the University of Wyoming, when you came in, as usually they would recruit maybe four or five African-Americans at a time. And as we came in, the other African-Americans, the older ones, would tell us what was transpiring, you know, where to go in the city, what to do. They'd really draw the lines for you. One thing they would always tell you, when you play BYU, play the hardest you can because you're going to get dirty ball play from that. And we kind of understood that. And they would tell us what would happen, the names they would be calling, what would transpire, how the coaches would tell them, if you go over there to church, by you in at the school, you can't go up and 
into the hall because you're not allowed in there. You can only go into the foyer, and they didn't look at black men. Is rising to the high echelon of men. They like to look at below men. So we kind of understood what that's going to. But when you're actually in a game, and this is in 1969, which it was supposed to be better race relation then, then you're called out of your name or you cheap shot it. And I remember one play I got cut so bad, I went over and I tried to tell the official, and the official told me to shut up and play ball. Now, I, I, he's supposed to be a neutral from what I understand. Our coaches never spoke up. I had one player on my team, Larry Nails, which was a pretty much close to All-American that year. He said, we'll get him. But you knew the kind of atmosphere that you would get at Brigham Young. Nobody changed it, whereas it would always be that way. I'm sorry about all my phones ringing. I'm in my hall. That's okay. It's just a thought process you had, and you always wanted to play hard against them. But what happened that year, the Black Student Alliance, led by a gentleman or a guy, I'm not going to go all the way to say German name. Uh, I don't even know if I want to say his name right now. Okay. Willie Black, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. All right. uh, they wanted to protest. And since it was homecoming, they wanted to protest against Brigham Young. And they wanted us to be involved. Well, we kind of understood that uh, we would be the power, but at the same time, we were number 12 in the nation. They told us if we win two more games, we'd go to the Sugar Bowl. They had been the Bowls prior to that, but this was supposed to be the best team uh, that Wyoming's had in years. And during that time, we had played four games, and out of four games, I don't know what you're aware of sacks are. That's getting to the quarterback. Four games, I had 11 sacks, so I was feeling pretty good about that. Everybody on the Black 14, pretty much uh, seven or eight of us were starters. We all were doing very well, and we were the core of that team. But at the same time, we were re we realized at that time with social injustice and things that are going on even at to this day that we had to have a voice. We couldn't just be athletes, but at the same time, we weren't protesting at that time, all of us. We weren't protesting the school. We were protesting the way we were treated. So what they did in the Black Student Alliance asked us, would we, uh, would we stand with them? We said, no, we, we're not going to stand with you. They said, well, can you think about doing something like wearing armbands? We said, i tell you what, uh, we'll consider that. We're going to go back and talk to the group. So we went back to the group, and the reason we spoke with the group, because we had two, a couple of guys on there, two to three that were married or almost married. So we told those guys right away, you don't need to be involved with this. It's going to be your choice. If you feel you want to be involved with this, you're more than welcome. But we understand you got families and wives to take care of, so you need to back out. And nobody wanted to back out, so we said, okay. Joe had heard a little rumor, Joe uh, Williams, that Eden had heard about us, and he had said, if we did anything, we were going to be in trouble. So we all got the idea, okay, let's go over to the field house on Friday before the game, take the bands, wear them over, let him see them. If he tell us that he doesn't want us to wear those armbands and they're going to play, we're not wearing the armbands. Well, lo and behold, as soon as we walked into the field house, he made us wait there. He came out and said, as of this moment, uh, yeah, I'm going to save you a lot of time and breath. You're no longer a Wyoming Cowboy. Then he went into the field house and sit down. He berated us for two hours, and I mean cursed us out, told us that half of us didn't know who our parents were, half of us was fatherless, half of he told me that I was picking up cigarette butts on the street of Battle Creek, and I wasn't. That was a lie. Mm. He told us that we need to go back and get on, go to the – Go to the Gramlins and the Bazoom Cookmans and those Morgan States of the world 
And if we didn't do that, go back and get on colored relief. If you don't know what I mean, get on Negro relief. Now, this is Lloyd E. We, we were utterly shocked. We put out, so then the athletic director heard about it and the governor, and they wanted to have a meeting that night, and uh, the meeting went on for hours and hours. Uh, Eaton would not even give us the autonomy or the thought process to lead this on by even coming out of his house and looking at the, uh, and, and listening to us at the meeting. So he said he wasn't going to waste his time coming out. So we stayed there one or two in the morning, and uh, we decided that we were going back. So right before we left, and I always try to tell both sides of it, uh, we were going to uh, a couple of the assets, the athletic director, somebody said, what can we do to have you play them out? Now, lo and behold, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. We've been negotiating all day. The game was at 12 o'clock the next day. Do you think we'd have been playing? No. But one of our guys blurted out, fire the coach, fire the athletic director. Well, no one said anything. And I'll, I tell you, this is a part of the, the story that I hope everyone just holds on to. Because we were supposed to be together then. We were supposed to be unified, and we had agreed that we may disagree with each other, but we will not do it in front of them. We will come together and, and resolve our differences in a manly way. So we didn't say anything. And to this day, I kind of regretted it because that's not what we wanted. So with that happening... With the story being misconstrued, it came out that we were protesting the church, we were protesting religion, nothing really came out about what we were doing. Things kind of just elevated. We went to the game the next day, had people for us, people against us. But then it started to get ugly around this, this town. People were going after, the whole state hated us after a while. And, and then we found out, even had taken our scholarships. I did not find out until this time last year that uh, some instructors and teachers had helped some of the Black 14 to uh, uh, even get through school the rest of that year. I thought they were back on scholarships because they went back on the team, but they weren't. After uh, so many days and time was passing, people started to tell Lloyd Eden that he was wrong on this situation. So he acquiesced to the thought press a little bit and said, well, these guys, if they want to come back and try out for their position in spring ball, I will allow that. Well, at that time, I knew I'd never go back. I found out that the coaches and Eden, they went around and called two or three of the guys and tried to get them to go back, but they felt like I was a troublemaker. So here we were. And then, now to tell you about Willie Black, he told us when all this happened, the one thing we wanted to make sure, not that we were just football players, we wanted to make sure we had teams, we wanted to make sure we had a chance to continue our education. He told us it was schools that were waiting for us. That was not true. We were blackballed by every school pretty much in the country. Hmm. Now, here we are, got a lot of top players, and nobody picked none of us up. Bishop College took me because one of the black 14, Jay Berry, was going back there, told him about me, and they gave me a scholarship. Hmm. That's why I'm sitting here speaking to you today. Mm. As it got ugly, you know, as I said, some of the teach, some of the instructors and people helped some of the players, but some of left because it was getting pretty harsh there. You know, we was having fights, and and like I tell you, one of my classes I know I went in, and it was led by a young lady who was a Mormon. It was the time when I started that class before the protest, I had like a B plus. Uh, by the time the protest was over, I had a D, and she would not even speak to me. Wow. And this is my instructor. 
had a person call my room and tell my roommate, who was Ted Williams at that time, that they were going to get me. Had some police try to arrest us, tell us that we was uh, I, I, that I had been disorderly with a pizza guy because he almost ran over my girlfriend's foot on purpose. But they were messing with us. And then last but not least, when they called my room and said they were going to get me, a couple of days later they found a guy on the building with a high-powered rifle. So you know it was time for us to leave. And I left after that, and I went down to Bishop College. And as I went down to Bishop College, I played there one year. Uh, I accomplished a lot. And, you know, right now some people trying to get me in the HBCU Hall of Fame because I feel like I want the world to know that the product they saw on ESPN the other day wasn't because of Wyoming, it was because of Bishop College. Hmm. But I went down to Bishop College for one year. We had nine games, as I think I told you. Uh, I had 109 tackles in nine games. I made Black College All-American. I, I made uh, Chicago Tribune, best 48 players in the country. Went on there to play the game as, where you played the former Super Bowl champions, which at that time was Baltimore. You play them. And it was a scout there from Chicago, and we had been through the draft, and I got drafted on the third round. People thought that was great coming from Bishop, but he said, man, he said, i tell you what, because I was starting for the Chicago All-Star team, and he said, you just keep your nose and play ball, because we, we lucky we got you at the time. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you were going number one to the Rams until they called until they called Wyoming. They told you you were the main troublemaker. Mm. All through my career – Every now and then I had to hear about uh, Wyoming or what this or that, and it followed me all the way. But I don't mind that because we stood up for something, and they're still talking about it, and we were barrier breakers. It was something that had to be done, something that they're really just recovering from. But the beauty of it, here we are 50 years later, and there's people apologizing, trying to make right for something they had nothing to do with. And so we're working together as a team now. We work with Wyoming, and we, the Black 14 is putting together a lot of things. Now, they've done a lot of great things for us this year. But what we're trying to do is with this pandemic going on, I think it's very important that when this is over, that people kind of understand that the aftermath may be worse than the actual event. And when I say that, I'm saying the jobs lost, the people without jobs, people without food, people without medicine, people without money, people with no means of transportation, and all, and the businesses that never will open again. So what we're looking at doing is we're, we, we were the barrier breakers, and that's what they called us. But we're not going to be barrier breakers. We're going to be game changers. We're through with the pity pot and everything. What they Oh, what they did to us in 69, we're over that. It did not define us. Every one of that black 14 Eight of us is here. Everybody did something special. We had one guy that was the executive in the, in the air in a, of the airline. We had another guy. Not only was he an outstanding educator, he was the mayor of the city. We had another guy that opened up the first divisions of of Lexus over in Japan. We had myself that was able to play football. We had another guy that was one of the top sports broadcasters in America a lead broadcast in Chicago and Detroit. So what I'm saying is it didn't define us. We were chosen. We were a special group of people. And that's why at this late stage in the game, we're still to represent, and we still owe it to our people to do what we can do to help everybody that we can. Mm. That is the voice 
of Tony McGee. He played 14 seasons in the National Football League with the Bears, Patriots, Redskins, part of the Black 14 uh, out of Wyoming in 1969. Joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Run. I know we have a short amount of time. Uh, your th- So, you know, I, your thoughts, uh, let, me, let me try to tie two things into this thought uh, on, on George Floyd um, and, and, and the protests that we're seeing, but then also what the National Football League is doing now in terms of, of apologizing to players for kneeling. I, I, I'm assuming they couldn't really mention Colin Kaepernick per se per the deal that they had a couple of years ago, whatever that was. But I want to get your thoughts on, you know, sort of all of that in the climate of where we are now. That old analogy is shutting the door when the horse is out. <laughs> you know, they're ready to say they were. Uh, they made a mistake there, and that's what they're doing with us. That's why right now you're seeing almost every day on ESPN, on SportsCenter, something about the Black 14. Mm. Yes, you can say that now, and I think the most important thing of it, yes, just as we did, he sacrificed a career. Now they're saying get him back in. So now my question is, why now? Why didn't you get him back in last year? But let me just say this, Mr. Ware. And when I call you, as you know, I'm serious. Yes, sir. <laughs> he could have come back, and I think he made a mistake to me when back in when, and when he was supposed to do the workout in January mm-hmm. here in front of 2016. Mm-hmm. If I really wanted to play, there's nothing that could have stopped me. Not saying that it's not going to be the media there I want or the coverage I want or where I want anything. You go and do it. So that's a mistake I think that I feel he made. Sure. As far as the NBA, they bought into the rhetoric of all these individuals around. And what they had to realize is that the majority of the people that make them money are African-Americans. But not to make the money part of it. Right and wrong comes into play with everything. And if you're a pro football team, you got to be right. you got to try to understand. And you take the color, you take everything out of it. You live your life trying to make sure that you do not mess with people and you do what you're supposed to do, and life will be better for everybody. So when you look back at that whole thing, we look at all the things that have gone on, but look what's happening now. And, you know, I hope you and I talk in the future. I like to enlighten you. I got a people like, and, and you, for you fans, look up an old name of a lead senator back in the, oh, the Reagan days and the Bush days and stuff. His name is Al Simpson. And there's one man, when I got, he used to see with the Senator Simpson at Wyoming when I played there. When I got traded to Washington, D.C., he called me from the Senate and told me he saw what they did to me. He did not appreciate it. He told me anything he could do for me, come on down. I'd go down to the center dining room and have me and him would have lunch. He would and special events he'd have me there. And this thing that Wyoming did this year, if it were not for him, it wouldn't have happened because we hit some snags. He's still been with us all these years later, helping us. And right now he's getting in us with this new project that we have when we're going to get computers for children to feed and feed individuals. So what I'd like for us to do now for this not to just be a one-time conversation, as this thing is transpiring, you let me know and give me a call anytime. I'll give you an opinion on it. I'll tell you what you need to know about it. And if I can't, I'll give you somebody that can. No, it, it, it's fair. It's a fair point. And by the way, 
Uh, it's the very point, the very point you made about Colin Kaepernick's the very point I made shortly after that um, uh, had happened with him in the workout. I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, um, lastly, before we let you go, so what, tell us a little bit more about what you have going on in terms of making sure. And I know you have a scholarship that you give out. You do a lot for uh, for kids and a lot in the community. Well, what we do, and we, we're proud to announce that we're pretty sure we're going to see how this pandemic goes. This may be our 36th year of having a television show. And we're going to own a longest-running sports show owned by a former NFL football player by anybody. And we're proud of that. And what we do with this show, we try to make the show um, interesting for each and every one. So we have things on there that women would like. We have, as the old pro said, we have uh, helping hand units where we have two or three things that we do, and we have hire a vet challenge where we have job fairs for veterans, and we have jobs come in and put them together. Then we have our scholarship and feeding program where we have the up-and-coming seniors write an essay pertaining to a subject matter that we have chosen, and then we choose the ones that are uh, with the best ones, and we give them computers. Well, this year we want to take that to the next level, and we want to give them computers. We want them to have a subject matter, but we want the subject matter to be the Black 14. And what we want you to, we want them to do, since there's so much out on it, study the Black 14. And what would you do? Because if so many people asked us, the, the 11 of us left, would you do it again? Are you angry? And what would you do? And believe it or not, we have a lot of guys that are still angry. We have a lot of guys that may not do it again. We have guys who would. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on, and we're going to make this thing more than just the Black 14 put off a team in 1969. We're going to make the Black 14 that was put off a team unjustly. Social justice was important, and we attacked the problem. We became better people, and we help other people. Very well said. Yeah, we, we got to, you know, I know we got to wrap it up. Tony McGee again played 14 seasons in the National Football League, part of the Black 14. Um, man, we, we got to, I, I know we're out of time. We're definitely going to get you back on. I want to talk with you a lot more about this. A lot of the things you're doing, I want to talk with you about what you did at Bishop. And then, of course, I got to talk about what you did in the league. That Super Bowl championship brought to Washington, D.C. Got to talk about that uh, as well. <laughs> Tony McGee joining us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Tony, I appreciate the time. I promise you we will be in contact with you soon to set something up with you uh, in the future. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. Look forward to it. Definitely have to get Tony McGee back on the program. Finished his collegiate career at Bishop and had a borderline Hall of Football career in the National Football League. Up next here on this Father's Day weekend edition of From the Press Box to Press Row, going to be joined by my father, Donald Ware. You're listening to From the Press Box to Press Row. That is the voice of Kevin Durant. I'm excited I get to play for them. They support us in everything we do. You know, it's a joy to, you know, go to work and, and know that you're going to be, uh, you know, they're going to cheer for you as loud as they can no matter who you're playing. I'm talking about none other than Serena Williams. That was definitely one of the better matches I've ever played. I've had it just like that. You know, it's really focused. It's really, you know, excited. He's Chadwick Bozeman and he joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. You are, in fact, a graduate. What do you remember most? most about your days at Howard. Howard is like one of those experiences where <laughs> you know it's a it's a bubble, you know it's a it's a special moment. Like I had some great teachers. Felicia Rashad was one of my teachers. You know, I just remember being nurtured to 
to respect black writers, black directors, black actors, as well as the classics. So you got the full scope of what you should experience. And I think that's unique to Howard. I just love the fact that they respected the full scope of it. Kiki Palmer joining us here on the program. I, I've grown in a lot of different ways. I think I've definitely grown as far as my age progression, and that shows that I've literally grown, I guess, on screen, and people have seen me from, you know, a young kid to coming of age into an adult, and I feel like slowly but surely they're not taking that Akilah memory out their head, but realizing Akilah also has, you know, has grown up. I don't ever want to be typecasted as just the weed hosting girl. That is the voice of Steph Curry. Your progress from David's to now with Golden State. Where I've come from in high school into a small D1 college in Davidson. Uh, it's a great story and uh, I'm just having fun, you know, living my dream and riding the ride. At the voice, of course, of T.I. It's some hard times down in the ATL, though, T.I. Yeah, and that is understood. It wouldn't be the first. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be the first nor the worst. But, you know, you got to stay down with the home team, you know? No, nah, no question. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still down with the skins, man. What can I say? They're, they're not doing too well right now. Well, like, <laughs> you know what I mean. We gotta, hey, 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 look, man, we gotta, we gotta hold it down so we can, so we can get it back right again. <laughs> that is the voice of Maria Taylor, ESPN College Sports Analyst. College Game Day is a show that I grew up watching, a, a show that I've always loved. I knew that when I was um, able to join, I was more than excited. I found out the same week as I turned thirty. And it's just something that I never dreamed I would be a part of, but something that I'm so thankful to have under my belt to have done for an entire season. There's nothing like it, honestly. Hello, I'm Josh Stone, and I'm here chatting to Donald on Thunder Press Box to Press Roll. Kimber Walker. A lot more poised now. You know, um, the game is slowed down, so you know, I kind of know what to expect. You know, I've been watching a lot of film on uh, offense and, you know, what plays I can make. You know, I'm just trying to make the best plays possible. When I draw a second defender to me, um, I know my job is done. I'm just trying my best to find the open guy. You know, the difference is guys are making shots. That's been the biggest difference. I'm talking about none other than Common. Well, I ended up in Sam just because I wanted to major in business. And Sam, you had the illustrious school of business. And, I mean, I played high school basketball, but... At one point, my career kind of rounded off because I got injured and I wasn't getting as much playing time, so I became impatient. I went to school first, starting off with general studies, then I found out that business was the key. That's what I wanted to do. I got into the school of business, and it was definitely a great learning experience for me. She's regarded as the best gymnast in the world. She's Simone Biles, the ESPN Swimsuit Edition. Actually, really fun. Like, to be honest, me and Allie had a lot of fun. We were like, oh, of course, like, we're the best shape of our lives. We're feeling confident about our body and we hope that other young girls and women like feel that being strong is so beautiful. So that's what we kind of try to do. Mine was just like beauty, but also showing muscles. Like I feel like when little girls look at that, they'll think it's okay to have muscles and be beautiful and like sexy at the same time in a good manner. And I think that's what we got across, hopefully. It was great. Greatest football player to ever play, Jim Brown. Muhammad Ali was a principal person in the country at the time, and he stood up and said that he was not going to the service because it was against his religion. Mm-hmm. Called all the top black athletes together, along with Carl Stoke, the first black mayor of a major city. So 
I'm glad you brought that particular incident up. Snoop Dogg is on the mic. Pay attention. Oh, man, thank you for having me, Clay, in a real way. I mean, I'm so honored. Snoop, you football league has done so many wonders. we got over 200 kids that have graduated from high school. We have over 50 kids that have grown to Division One. WWE champion Alexa Blish. How does one go from being a cheerleader as you were at the Division One level at Akron to being the WWE champion? <laughs> well, uh, after I cheered in Akron, my uh, trainer had told me that WWE was having a tryout, so and they knew I was a fan. So I went online and I submitted a video to WWE.com. Um, I didn't think anything would come of it, but then I was called and given a tryout. And then after I tried out, I was signed to NXT, and it just kind of became a roller coaster from there. So we're joined by the one and only Jerry Rice. What do you remember most about those days at Mississippi Valley State? What is going on at Mississippi Valley State? University. <laughs> Why are these guys putting up unbelievable numbers? And that brought awareness to the school. And after that, I got drafted to the San Francisco 49ers. Hey, everybody, what's going on? This is Anthony Anderson, international movie star and funny mother. <laughs> and you're listening to From the Press Box to Press Row. From the Press Box to Press Row is the sports talk show that is the voice and the talk of HBCU sports with a flair for pro sports talk and Entertainment. Check the show out online at www.boxtorow.com. That's from the press box to press row. Real, relevant radio. Father's Day weekend here on from the press box to press row. As we done for the last several years, we're joined by my father here on the program. Donald wears a graduate of Howard University, and he joins us here on the program. Happy Father's Day to you. Thank you, son. I appreciate it. Um, thanks for having me. I am always look forward to this. I think this is our maybe third or fourth year, so I'm looking forward to many, many, many more days. No question. Uh, uh, let's start here. There's so many things that are going on uh, really right now. I, I kind of want to get your thoughts on uh, your initial reaction to what you saw with respect to to George Floyd and uh, and his uh, murder by the police officer there in Minneapolis and then the subsequent protests? Well, I was uh, very saddened by the um, <clears throat> actions of the uh, police officers um, just uh, keeping, you know, his um, knee on his, on his neck for, I think, eight minutes and 43 seconds or something like that, but... Um, you know, any length of time, it, it was too much, and um, we shouldn't have that in our society. And uh, certainly that prompted, you know, protests, you know, throughout the world, not just the United States, but throughout the world. And especially here in Washington, D.C., there were, you know, you know, maybe, as I can remember, about four or five protests at the same time in different areas of the city. So I just think that's something that we need to... Um, you know, just try to get through this and not have this type of behavior again. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. I mean, is it is it disappointing? I, you know, you came up in D.C. Uh, D.C. was actually a lot different when you were coming up now. Uh, disappointing that we're still, you know, talking about uh, and having these kind of conversations. Well, yes, it's disappointing because um, the riots that we had in 1960, I believe about 50 years ago, 
and um, it seemed like we haven't come far. You know, it seemed like we regress instead of progress. And uh, that's that's very sad for me to 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 say that, but I just don't think we have uh, achieved uh, that much. I mean, things have improved, but they should have improved faster. You know, we should have be be way beyond this point of um, black men, black people getting killed by police officers. What what was the climate like there in D.C. Certainly back in the time when you were. Uh, coming up uh, in in the in, in more specifically in the '60s. Well, um, I thought that um, you know, growing up in Washington D.C. during during that time of the uh, '60s, it, you know, as I understood it, you know, '50s and '60s, it was it was it was pretty safe. I mean, I I wasn't aware of a lot of you know things that that are going on today. You know, I didn't realize the events that were going on in the South. I think um, growing up in D.C., going to D.C. public schools, you were, you more or less, you were protected. You, you, our parents, your grandparents protected us from, from that, and we didn't really know that much of what was going on in the South and how they discriminated against blacks. I really didn't learn a lot of that until, you know, later on when I, became a, a you know a young man in my 30s and 40s that I learned a lot about the discrimination in the south that's uh, my father Donald Ware here on from the press box to press row it's a father's day weekend here on the program what you know obviously you went to Howard uh and we see now I mean we see today where more of the black athletes are going to the um, to the uh, uh, predominantly white institutions. Uh, but I, I don't know, perhaps there may be a shift uh, in that, especially in light of George, see how things happen. But sort of was it like when you were coming up and just speak to how uh, mostly, uh, you know, black uh, athletes went to HBCUs? Well, they, they did um, during that time. And that's why, uh, especially as I can speak to football, like teams like Morgan State, you know, Jackson State, uh, Southern, you know, Grambling, they had really good football teams, and a lot of those black players were blue chips, and they made it, you know, to the to the pros. But I think in 1972 or so, and uh, I don't know exactly what happened in terms of some law that was passed, but a lot of the blue chip players were now recruited by the white schools, University of, and so forth and so on. So you don't have that strong black athletes today or during the 90s and the 2000s going uh, to, to pro football, mainly uh, the majority of those black players coming from the, the, the state universities. Was it more choice uh, back then? Uh, w- was there, I mean, maybe not, I don't know about with you, but, you know, was there, is that where, Black kids, mostly that you know of, at least in in the kids you knew, uh, maybe even yourself, wanted to actually go to HBCUs. Well, I think my story is a little different. That would probably be another program, but um, uh, I think um, most of the student athletes, the black student athletes, were thinking ahead about playing 
professional ball, and I'm only speaking in terms of football, they didn't really care if, if it was a black university or or um, a white university. They wanted to go to a school where they could be recognized and um, that would propel them into pro football. So I think that the choice was to just go where they could make it to the next level to play on Sundays. Well, so give us the short version of how you ended up at Howard. I think you had, you know, maybe some other offers, including maybe an opportunity to go to uh, to go to Baton Rouge and play at Southern. Well, uh, yeah, that wasn't until um, after I had entered Howard. I was um, trying to, to get a scholarship at Hampton, of all places, <laughs> the small HU, and um, and Howard, of course, is the real HU. But I, <laughs> I was trying to um, get a, um, a baseball scholarship at Howard, and I think also a football scholarship at uh, North Carolina A and T. But um, they they fell through, and uh, that's when I disenrolled in Howard. Uh, Howard. Um, academic people came over to my high school my senior year and that's when I actually signed up you know you paid a $60 application fee and you know and then after that I was accepted but I had no means of uh, no uh, vision of going you know to Howard I wanted to go to a school that um, would uh, propel me into the pro, pro, pro league so I really wasn't thinking of Howard at the time because Howard, you know, during that time, during the uh, mid-60s and even before that, it was mainly uh, the Black Harvard or you know, academic school, and they didn't really excel went to the pros was Howie Williams, or Howard Williams, and uh, I think he went in 1962 to the Oakland Raiders. But... Um, you know how it just wasn't, um, you know, equipped to, to with the um, acad- with the um, athletics at that at that time. Yeah, and and then of course that's my father joining us here on the program. Um, so they ultimately had a great career at Howard. You did uh, ended up starting as a as a freshman. Uh, I know you've told this story, uh, you know, midway maybe midway through the season, and then the next three years ultimately led. Um, to um, to to uh, a a tryout at least uh, professional football, but uh, you know, tell the story about uh, the meeting there at uh, at Redskins headquarters um, down in D.C. in uh, in 1970. Yes, um, um, well, bef- even before that, I was scouted. I, I played a football game at the Moore House. It was a night game and. I found out later that I was scouted by Bobby Mitchell, who was a great Redskin uh, receiver and and um, assistant general manager, and I didn't realize it at that time. But um, um, subsequently, I wasn't it wasn't drafted, and I did receive a call from the Washington Redskins office, which was located at that time, I believe, at um, Farragut West near, I think. Connecticut and L down in that area, and I received a call that they wanted to you know, sign me as a free agent, and um, then I, you know, went to the office on February the third, nineteen seventy, and um, there I, you know, signed my. Um, I had a ten o'clock meeting with Coach Vince Lombardi, 
And uh, that's all I knew of at that time. So when I arrived at the office, I announced myself, and the receptionist called back to his office, and um, she told me to have a seat and that um, <clears throat> somebody would be with me you know, right away. So a couple of minutes later, the phone rang at the receptionist's desk, and she told me to go ahead you know, back to his office. And his office was, uh, I guess, about maybe 50 feet or so from the reception area, and I had to walk forward. But as I walked toward his office, I just seemed like I was walking on a cloud. I, I, I guess my, I couldn't get my footing, and it seemed like I was going to fall. It seemed like I was walking on a cloud. But I walked to his office, and I can I could see on the uh, door Coach Lombardi. So I, I knocked on the door. The door was closed, knocked on the door, and I heard this deep voice, you know, come in like that. So I opened the door, and... Um, and I didn't know that um, others would be there. Bobby Mitchell was there. He was sitting at at the at the, um, at the desk, and also Charlie Taylor was there. And he was over to the side, you know, probably making a cup of coffee or a cup a cup of tea. And Vince uh, told me to enter and told me to sit down, and I did. I sat right beside Bobby, and um, we um, at that particular time. Mr. Coach Lombardi was, you know, taking care of some some papers. So we just sat there, and I sat there nervously. And uh, then all of a sudden he he looked up, and um, he pushed some papers aside, and he said, welcome. He said that we have scouted you, we have looked at some film, and we like what we see. And um, we want to um, invite you to train in camp. We'd like to sign you as a free agent but we would like for you to play cornerback. Now, at Howard, I played um, tight safety and free safety. I never really really played cornerback. But Coach Lombardi indicated that he wanted me to play cornerback because, because I could close on the ball, you know, really well. So I said, okay. And he said um, the thing that he asked, he asked me could, that I thought that I could check Charlie Taylor. And Charlie was over at the side there, and then when Vince noticed that the Charlie became anxious and he started stirring the <clears throat> the cup with with the um, spoon, and you can hear the tingling. And so I didn't know really what to do. Vince was looking at me. Bobby appeared to be very nervous because they wanted the right answer. So the question again was, do you think you can check Charlie Taylor? So I thought about it a while, and I said, well, i got to come through with this. I can't act like I can't check him, and then I can't just overdo it. So I looked up, and I looked at Vince, looked him in the eye, and said, no one can. When I said that, a big grin came on his face, and I noticed that he pushed this long boot paper in front of me. It was the uh, National Football League NFL contract. So I signed it, and Bobby Mitchell signed it, and it was for for $12,500. During that time, incoming rookie agents were signed for $12,000. I guess I got the 500 for being <laughs> from D.C. to bring in some people to uh, the D.C. Stadium, you know, or RFK. So um, 
that's how that that went. I you know uh, signed the contract, got a copy of the contract, and uh, and shortly thereafter we reported to to uh, Georgetown University for a four day training camp. You know which Lombardi indicated that um, we're not going to cut anybody. You know, we're here to learn about you. You're going to learn about the coaches and so forth and so on. So, um, but I noticed we would show up to practice. It was less and less players. Either they were dropping out or whatever the situation is. But I made it through that camp. And um, then I believe around the 25th, 70s, when I reported to Carlisle. And uh, I was there for a little while, and I was playing um second string behind Mike Bass, and uh, I noticed in, in the practices I was ch- ch- was trying to check Charlie Taylor. You know, it was very difficult to, to check him, and um, so that's how my NFL career went. <laughs> yeah, that is that is yeah. a great, great story. Uh, my yeah. father joined us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. I uh, uh, wish we had more time. Uh, we got to run, but appreciate the time. Again, happy Father's Day to you. Thank you a lot. I appreciate it. I look forward to next year. Definitely looking forward to that. Finally today, here on From the Press Box to Press Row, want to talk to the parents of prospective athletes, high school athletes, thinking about going to colleges and directly to those Athletes, You know, there's been a lot of talk. We've seen the protests that have happened the last several weeks. We see the change that is starting to really take place. And at the heart of a lot of this it are athletes, student athletes. We look at, let me give you an example. We look at like a Mike Gundy, the head coach there, the head football coach there at Oklahoma State who wore an America One uh, One America Network t-shirt not even understanding that that is sort of like a pro-Trump medium and we know what Trump is all about you know not even having the awareness of that you know you look at texas and in the uh, football players at the university of texas that want statues taken down that want uh, the names of buildings changed guess what if you go to an hbcu you don't have to worry about all of that you don't have to worry about a lot of times if the coach um, can understand what you're going through. You don't have to worry about stuff like that. We talk about all of these statues and so forth that need to be removed. And even at the University of Texas, the athletics director there is asking for patience from the student athletes. Well, if you go to an HBC, you don't have to worry about uh, uh, statues. You can go to uh, and, and I'm just using A&T as an example where the statue, one of the statues on that campus is the Greensboro Four or the A&T was 1960. The uh, started the sit in across the country. You don't you can go to a Morgan State where the building is named after Earl Graves, the founder of Black Enterprise. Uh, rest in peace to Earl Graves. Going to some of these HBCUs where you will be welcome. The fan bases are as passionate uh, as they are anywhere else, maybe smaller fan bases, but passionate, none the same 
as anywhere else. You won't have to worry about all of these things. Great academic institutions as well with a big-time legacy. And by the way, you want to play professional sports, some of the greatest players to ever play in any respective sport went to HBCUs. It's something to think about. Got to get ready to run here. Thank you to my father. Thank you to Tony McGee for joining us. Don't forget about the HBCU Football Daily Podcast on BotchToRow.com. And always remember to support those that support you. From the Press Box to Press Row is presented by DW Communications.